0: Welcome to Outreach Church. Thanks for checking out this week's message. To hear more, subscribe to our podcast on iTunes or visit OutreachChurch.net for downloads and service information. You know, we, we just sang, you see me, you know me through and through. That idea used to terrify me. Like that God saw me and saw everything that I did and knew what was inside of me was the most terrifying thing in the world for a time of my life and it's now become one of the most comforting things in life is to know that everywhere i go no matter what i'm doing he sees me and he knows my heart and he's there and and it wasn't i've changed but my view of who he is has changed And why he's looking at me. My understanding has changed. He's he's not looking at me to find fault. He's looking at me because he loves me. And if he sees something in my heart or sees something going on in my life, he loves me enough to tell me about it and point it out to me. But that's not what he's looking at me for. That's not the reason he's looking at me. He's looking at me because he loves me. I remember that. I remember so clearly that the best picture I ever had of that was when me and Patty were first dating, I would just stare at her like I do now. And I, she was driving, and she's like, what? And she started doing this. And, and I realized, and I looked, and I said, I'm not, I'm not looking at you because there's something wrong. I'm looking at you because you're my favorite thing in the world to look at. I'm not looking at you to find a blemish. I'm looking at you because I've found beauty. And I realize the longer I live that his eyes are upon me and he sees me because he sees the beauty of who he created me to be with my life surrendered and yielded and filled with the spirit of God. And he actually likes me. He likes me. He loves me. It's his good pleasure to give me the kingdom. He's not begrudgingly saying, well, I guess you figured it out and earned it, so here you go. No, he's excited. He's like, yes, you're figuring things out. You're believing. You're becoming. Yes, here's more. If you want to hide your face because you're afraid of what he might see, then maybe you need to ask him to show you what he sees when he sees you. I remember telling my wife that one time, I said, if you could look through my eyes for one minute, you would never be insecure in front of me again if you saw the way I see you. And I feel like the Father would say to us, if you could see through my eyes for one minute the way I look at you, you would never be insecure again. You couldn't have an insecure thought if you tried. If you saw through my eyes and looked at yourself just for one minute and saw the way that I see you. You couldn't be insecure if you tried. You'd have to get over to the other verses that say, let no man think more of himself than he ought. (laughs) Because seeing what God sees in you and understanding why he paid the price he paid for you could put you into that place pretty quickly because you'd realize that he thought you were worth the blood of his son, Jesus. And not just like on your best day, not just when you feel like there's a cape fluttering behind you and the angels are singing and everything is right. On your worst day, on the day that you're thankful nobody knows about, he looked at you with the eyes of love and said, you're worth it. you're worth it because i know you're more than that and because i believe if my spirit gets inside of you if you receive my son and become who you were created to be if you be born again i believe in what you become and that's worth the blood of my son jesus and i'll shed his blood for the chance at seeing you become everything i created you to be so i didn't i didn't always understand that i didn't always i didn't know that, and, and it wasn't that I was taught wrong as much as sometimes we teach by what we don't say as much as we teach by what we do say. i didn't know that he was kind i didn't know he was gentle i didn't know that i didn't know the the love he had for me i I knew that I was a sinner, and because of that, Jesus had to give his life, but I never understood that. It wasn't because I was a sinner alone that Jesus gave his life. He gave his life so that I could stop being what I was never meant to be and become who I was always meant to be from the beginning. I didn't get that. I didn't know that he sent his son because he loved me. I thought he sent his son so that he could. And it wasn't like my parents, they're amazing godly people. I grew up in church and it wasn't a perfect church, like Outreach, but it was, it was, a... I you. It wasn't, but, it, but, it, but, but my parents raised us to know him and to, and to, to know about God, and I, I learned about him, but to be honest, my idea of God was probably closer to Santa than God. He was kind of this distant old guy. Who hovered around somewhere and saw everything that happened and gave you what you deserve based on your actions? Naughty or nice? He's making a list, he's checking it twice. He's gonna find out who's naughty or nice. That was kind of more my idea, of Santa. So I, I didn't know that I was, I didn't know why I was created. I, I, I honestly didn't. I, I remember thinking sometimes, what was the point? I remember reading the story of Adam and Eve and thinking, what was the point? And then I found out that he knew everything before it happened, and it really blew my mind because it's like, well, if you knew that was going to happen, then what was the point? And if we're just sinners and we're just failures and that's all we're ever going to be until one day when we die. And, and tip, truthfully, my idea of a Savior was more closely tied to when I physically died and left the earth than it was when I met the man Jesus and became a new creation in Christ. Because I believed that I would be this way until one day. And that one day was when I died and went to heaven. Not when I died so heaven could come inside of me. And I I guess at a young age, I told my parents I wanted to be a pastor. I don't remember that. I said I wanted to preach. I don't remember that. In fact, I remember being asked to preach and saying no later in life. But I remember, I, remember I, was, I was nine years old, and um, my little brother was seven, and, and I had a friend who was a little older. He was, I think, 10 or 11. And, and we would see his uncle smoke pot on his front porch and then take what was left and stick it down in the cracks of the wooden porch. And so one day, we got the brilliant idea that we would take the grate out of the porch, and we would climb underneath the porch, and we would harvest <laughs> said joints, <laughs> And so we did. We went and picked roaches. And we brought them back to our tree fort. And at the ages of like 11, 9, and 7, got high. My little brother, who was 7, fell out of the tree fort. We did exactly what you guys just did. We all laughed. <laughs> you're not even high and you're laughing. <laughs> What's wrong with you? I just told you a 7-year-old kid fell out of a tree fort. <laughs> <I> need Jesus. <laughs> We did. And I didn't, I didn't know it at the time. And, and here's the thing. That this is why you have to be so careful about compromise, especially when you're doing things that you don't understand, is because there was a seed that was planted there that wouldn't bear fruit for some time. And that seed was that it was okay and that nothing bad happened. And so when it was a little while later in life and it was, an act, it was offered to me again, there was already something inside of me that had gone to that place and a seed had been sown inside. That's why it's super important whenever something happens in your life, if you, if you step out of, out of his will, you step out of what he calls you to, and, and even if you don't immediately see a, a result of it, even if you don't immediately see death, because you know, the wages of sin is death, and we don't immediately see death, and so sometimes we can start to wonder maybe it wasn't sin. If you know that it violated your conscience, deal with it right away, because there's a seed there that if you don't deal with it, it doesn't get uprooted right away, will bear fruit at some point in your life. And so that seed was already planted, and so it, it, I didn't have a fear, and it wasn't a bad thing. And so when someone offered it to me a little bit later in life, I, I, I said yes, because that thing was starting to reproduce itself, and I it, had already opened a door for it. And, and, and that's why the, the, Paul writes this, and he says, you know, give the devil no foothold. He, he can't take a foothold, but he'll take everyone you give him. But be, re, be assured, you had to give it to him. He has no foothold in your life that you haven't willingly offered up to him. And if you've given him one and he's found a place, snatch it back and see him tumble. You can take it back just as easily as you gave it. All it takes is repentance. So by the time I was like 15, 16 years old, I was just completely... Just giving myself to doing drugs and getting high, and and like everything in life. And this is how, this is why the things are, are such a big deal, is because when you stand staring at a 20 foot ladder and you think about being at the top of the ladder, it seems so far, but the first rung is so easy. And you step onto that first rung, the next rung is that much easier. And pretty soon you've just taken these easy little steps. And all of a sudden, one day you look down and you realize you're 20 feet up. How did I get there? You got there because you just did the next thing that was in front of you. It wasn't that one day you decided to go from where you were on the ground to 20 feet up the ladder. It was that you put your foot on the first step, which made the next step easier. And every step makes the next one that much easier. And you draw these lines inside of yourself that you say you won't cross. But sooner or later, you've been here so long that there doesn't seem like such a far step anymore. And so you cross that line and now you draw a new line. And this becomes normal. And this becomes tolerable and acceptable, and the new line is over there, and then pretty soon you've been here for so long that suddenly you're so close to that line that it's just one little step to step over that line, and you draw a new one, and on and on it goes, and there's no end to it, except death. And, and that was me, I, you know, I would make this line of, I'll do this, but I won't do that, then I would do this long enough that that didn't seem bad, so I'd do that, and then I'd do this long, this became that, and then i do, or that became this, and I'd do this, and... I won't do that, and then i do that, and that became this. Next thing you know, I've this and that my way into doing everything you can imagine and never dreaming that I would end up there and the whole time thinking that I was better than the people around me because of something that I knew. See, be careful that you don't know something that makes you think something about yourself that isn't true and that you're not insulated and have just enough Jesus that you have the little vaccine. Where they've given you just a little bit of Jesus that makes you immune to the real thing because of what you know. And that's where I was. I was kind of immune to this idea, because I'd grown up in church, and I'd gone to church. going to church doesn't make you a Christian anymore, than painting yourself orange, and hanging from an orange tree makes you an orange. It doesn't. And you know the truth of the matter is is once you're squeezed, everyone would find out you're really not an orange. And I I was 15, 16, and I'm starting to just violate every line that I've ever made in my life, and the whole time, just completely chasing after something, and you don't even know what it is, but you're chasing it. And so it wasn't long before you do drugs long enough, and you decide, I could sell these, and I could make money off them, and I could get high free, and so pretty soon, it's just that natural next step. You go from doing them to doing them and selling them. And, and along with selling comes all kinds of other things. And now you have to really be tough because otherwise people just take your stuff from you. And so you got to carry a gun or you to make sure you fight enough that everybody knows that even if they get your stuff, it's not going to be worth it because it's not going to be easy. And you, you, you put up this front and you become something that you're not. and You become so good at acting that you start to believe that you are the person you've acted like. That doesn't happen in church, but it does out there in the world. And and that's what I did. And I, I even looked the part, kind of. I mean, I thought I looked the part. <laughs> I probably looked ridiculous. <laughs> but I, I had dreadlocks down to here. My bottom six teeth were white gold. I wore pants that would have fit someone that was 220 pounds, and I probably weighed a buck 20 soaking wet. It's just stupid. Like, sin makes you look like an idiot. So don't dress like you're sinning, because there's no point in looking like an idiot if you're not. you are going to get me in trouble. Stop laughing. <laughs> and so along with that came everything else that comes with it. And then one day I remember coming home, and there was my mom, my, my sweet mom, um, who really modeled what it is to be selflessly loving to us ever since we were little kids. Like She brought homeless people home to eat dinner with us long before that was cool, not to put on Facebook. Just because she saw someone who needed a place to eat, and we had a place to eat, so she brought them home. And we would serve, and, and I remember when, when Hurricane Andrew came through South Florida, I remember being brought out to the South Florida Fairgrounds, which was the Red Cross Depot for all the supplies coming in from around the world. And there we were till wee hours of the morning, taking boxes and running them down rollers to get them loaded off of the trucks, falling asleep practically and doing it. My mom telling us it's because there's people out there that need this stuff, and this is the way we love. And my mom was standing there and she did not have a sweet look on her face at all. And she's holding my little backpack, and my little backpack was what had everything that I needed for selling, scales, you know, drugs, gun, all that stuff was in there. And actually, I don't think I gun was in, I think I had it with me, but but all my drugs and stuff were, and she said, What is this? And I snatched it from her and she said, What are you doing? And I was like, what, what do you mean? What am I doing? She said, What are you doing? I said, Nothing. And she said, and one of the wisest things that she's I've heard someone say she said that can't stay here. It's okay to not allow things in your home that shouldn't be there. It doesn't make you mean. It makes you loving. Your kids don't need a friend that affirms them making decisions that Jesus died for them to be set free from. They need a parent that knows that there's a day coming that that seed will start to reproduce after its own kind and it will bear fruit. And I said, What do you mean? She said, That can't stay here. And I was like, You're kicking me out? And she said this this is what she said. She said, I'm not kicking you out. I'm saying that has to go. If you choose to go with it, that's your choice. It won't stay here. And So I did what every rebellious 17, 18-year-old kid would do, right? I'm, you know? <laughs> grabbed all my stuff, which consisted of a trash bag of clothes and skateboard and surfboards and threw them in the back of my truck and went over to my friend's house because I could hang out. I could live there. And I hung out there all the time, stayed there all the time anyway, so I was like, cool, I'll just go live there. No big deal. So I go to his house and... We're doing drugs and whatnot, and his dad walks in. His dad didn't care what we did, really. And This one day, though, for some reason, he cared. He walks up to me. and says, how come every time I come in my house, you're here? I'm like, because no, he invited me. And, and he starts getting in my face, and, and so my friend then tells him to shut up, and they start fighting, and they fist fight. And now he's telling both of us to get out. So we run out to the truck and jump in as we're driving off. He kicks my truck, and I look over at my friend, and I'm like, well, we're both homeless. <laughs> I mean, here's the thing, is that every time you see somebody homeless, it's not always because they've made all these horrible decisions. A lot of times it's the result of one really bad decision and then pride keeping them from making the right one. It's easier than you think sometimes. And so we called my other friend, uh, uh, one of my other friends, and, and he informed us that last night his mom had kicked him out of the house. And that he had found a place to stay, and we were welcome to come stay there. This was great. Now we had a house. And now you could come over anytime you wanted to, as long as you had stuff to share. You could do your drugs. You just had to bring enough for us. And we sold, and we did, and we used, and we abused, and we used, and we abused people, and we used, and abused ourselves. And I remember I was so in a place where I didn't trust anybody that I started sleeping with all of my clothes on, on my stomach. And it was a habit that I carried way into adult life. And I remember one time my wife asked me, Why do you sleep with your clothes on? How can you sleep in jeans? And I realized it was because it became a habit to put everything in my pockets and then sleep on my stomach so that nobody could rob me, because I would rob you if I had the opportunity, so of course you would rob me if you had the chance. And I remember one night, I came home, and my friend who I lived with said, hey, you know so-and-so, right? And Now, this, this guy was one of my best friends in second grade. We were actually in a school for gifted children together. In second grade, and we were in that same class, our for third grade, fourth grade, fifth grade, sixth grade, seventh grade. And and he and I became such great friends that when his parents went through a hard divorce, he actually came to live with us for a year at our home. And my mom considered him to be a son. And and I said, Yeah, yeah, he's I mean, he's one of my best friends. And he said, Yeah, he just got arrested for murder. And I remember that like shook me. And uh in a in a crack deal gone bad, he had shot and killed a kid. And then Rolled a blunt and called the police. And 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 I remember like thinking about that. And I, I, the timeline's kind of fuzzy, but I just remember around that time thinking like, "What's the point? Like, what's the point?" And I wasn't like I was like suicidal. I didn't want to die, but I was equally ambivalent about living because what was the point? And I, I kind of really from that point on just went on a, a binge and a tear and a, like I had, it was bad before, but it got worse. And at one point I was, there's this just three day period where I just put everything into my body. I could get my hands on it. I remember one time I I hit a line of cocaine so big that when I hit it, as soon as I did, my heart pounded so hard that I puked and 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 I Felt like I was overdosing and my heart was pounding so hard. You could my shirt was moving physically, like bouncing off my chest. And and if I looked at myself, my skin looked like it was crawling around on my body, and you know, my pupils were the size of quarters, and I was just so out of my head. And I remember thinking, I'm gonna die, I don't want to die here. I'm gonna go back to my parents' house and I can die there. And I I went to I went in, to their house at three in the morning and I broke in the The back door because I wasn't allowed to be there and one of the skills I had picked up in life was being able to break into anywhere and I broke into the back door and I remember as I was recalling this in my mind earlier I I remembered this detail that I hadn't remembered before but the first thing I remembered when I opened that door was the smell that came out of the door and it smelled like home you've been home when you haven't been for a while some of you don't even realize home has a smell until you're gone And you go back home and you smell that and there was something about my mom and dad's house and that smell. And I remember in the instant feeling something I hadn't felt in a long time and it was peace. Because the peace of God rested there in that home. Don't apologize for having a standard in your home because you value the peace of God. And I didn't even know it at the time. I, I wouldn't have even been able to say, wow, the peace of God is here. I just, something was different. And, and so I still felt like I was dying. I still had this heart going crazy and just, I mean, just crazy, whack stuff. I could hardly like, tell what was real and what wasn't. And I went into the bathroom and I was shut and locked the door and I looked into this big, full glass mirror that we had and it looked like Satan staring back at me. And I hated what I saw I'd hated what I saw for a long time to be honest I didn't like what I saw when I looked in the mirror I could smile I wasn't a bad-looking person but I saw beyond that I knew what was back there I hated it and I don't I don't I to this day I don't know if it was, you know, a hallucination from the drugs or if it was God opening my eyes to who I was giving my life to. But it just so grossed me out, so terrified me, and so brought me to this place of hating life the way it was that I said, I don't know if it's out loud in my heart, I said, God, if you're real, change me or let me die. I can't live like this anymore. And I'm telling you, the second more came out of my mouth, I was sober. My heart calmed. My pupils went to normal size. I looked in the mirror, and I saw me. My skin didn't look like it was crawling. I looked in the mirror again, and I actually liked what I saw. And I've come to know since then, I didn't have a theology for it at the time, but I've come to realize he didn't give me one or the other. He actually gave me both. And I died in that moment and was changed because I came to the end of wanting to live for myself. And I remember thinking, oh my God, you're real. And I remember, I don't know if I was saying it out loud or, or if I was just saying in my head, it was like, you're real. You're real. You're really real. you're—you're. You're, I remember I was just like, Everything I'd heard, like all these things, this idea of God and, and the existence of God and, and all these things that I had kind of put on the back of my mind because, you know, you can only violate what you believe for so long before you'll change what you believe to make where you're at comfortable. I had done that. Don't, that that's, that's what's hardening your heart is. Hardening your heart is violating what you know to be true so much that you change what you believe is true to accommodate the way that you're living. That's a scary place to be. But the heart can't stay in that place of being pulled in the opposite directions for too long. You'll choose one or the other. So I says, no man can serve two masters. He'll love one and hate the other. Or he'll hate one and love the other. And that was what happened to me was I chose to serve something else. I had to turn my back on what I knew to be true, to live the way that I was living and be okay. And I remember just freaking out and being like, you're real you're really real. You're real. You're real. And I just, at that moment, I realized, like, and, and here's the thing. I, I know, like, the Romans wrote, like, right? if you believe in your heart and confess your mouth, Jesus is Lord, and that God raised him from the dead, you'll be saved. I also know that God's looking at your heart, and whether you had the right verbiage come out of your mouth or not, it doesn't matter to him. It's the yielded, surrendered heart that he says, I'll take that, and I'll do what you don't even know how to ask. Yeah, that's right. Because the thief on the cross, all he said was, Remember me when you come into your kingdom. What was he saying? Your Lord. Yeah. Jesus said today, you'll join me in paradise. You'll be with me in paradise. It's the heart that wants something that he can work with. You know, on the other hand, you can say anything that you want. If it's not actually truth, it means nothing. In, 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 in Psalms, there's a verse that talks about this. Um, and, and, and people have taken this verse, and, and, and rightly so. The, the part of the verse that's really famous is a the thing, man thinks in his heart, so he is. But it says, if you're with a selfish man, don't eat his food or desire his delicacies. For as he thinks in his heart, so is he. And your your compliment will be wasted and what you ate will be vomited up. What he's saying is, it, it doesn't matter if someone who has greed in their heart on the outside says, here, take this and eat this. Because what they're saying doesn't change the fact that in their heart, they wish they weren't giving it to you. What you really believe in your heart is what you really are, not what you say. When those two line up, it's amazing. When out of the abundance of the heart, the mouth speaks, and it's truth, it's amazing. But if the heart isn't there, all the Elizabethan English that you could muster to pray to him a flowery prayer changes nothing if the heart isn't yielded. Conversely, if you don't know how to put it into words, but your heart's there, just open your mouth, and whatever comes out, he'll bless that. He'll bless that. That's why he told disciples, he said, when you find yourself standing before kings, don't worry about what you will save. Just open your mouth, and I promise in that day, I'll give you the words to speak. Why? He's saying, if I have your heart, when you stand before the king, if your heart is to speak, I'll give you the words. Trust me. Why? Because it's the heart that matters. And so, with my heart, I believed. With my mouth, I confessed, kind of. And I opened the bathroom door And there, standing there at 3 something in the morning, is my mom with tears in her eyes. And she said, God woke me up and said, my son's come home. And she (laughs) hugged me. Yeah, she hugged me. She prayed with me. She prayed over me. And I went and slept for like 24 hours. And I woke up, and I was not the person that I was when I broke into the house. I had a reason for living. I had a purpose. And I had someone that I was going to pursue for the rest of my life. And I started reading the Bible and reading the Bible like it was my first time ever. And all of a sudden, I started seeing the love of God everywhere I looked. I couldn't escape it. I started to read. I read John 3.16 like it was the first time. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son. And I realized, you didn't hate me. You loved me. That's why you sent your son you already loved me and i read in titus it says while we were yet in sin he demonstrated his love towards us he sent his son and i thought you mean to tell me that this whole time i was messing up and thinking that i was making you hate me even more you actually loved me how could you love me like that and i got a revelation of a loving father and i started to understand and, and i was reading the word and, and it was coming alive to me and, I remember talking to my little brother, he had moved up here because of a job, and and he was telling me, he said, you should move up to South Carolina, there's a lot of good people up here, and, you know, just thinking it'd be easier for me to get away from the scene that I'd been involved with, and I was like, yeah. So so I did this crazy thing where I asked God if I should go to South Carolina, and I expected that he was going to answer. Novel concept for me at that time. It shouldn't be a novel concept for Christianity today. Call to me and I'll answer. That's a promise of God, not a figment of our imagination. And I, I asked him if I should go, and it was like the second I asked, yes. And, and I didn't have anyone to talk me out of it, and I didn't have a bad theology to talk me out of it. I, actually, I had a theology that just a few nights before I had called out to God, and he answered. So it was kind of like, well, of course you'll answer me. Why wouldn't you? You're a father that loves me. I'm your son. If my son came to me and asked me a question and I knew the answer, I'd tell him. I wouldn't play games with him and hide it and twinkie it in front of him and manipulate him and try to get him to do what I wanted him to do against his own will. I'd actually hope that he loved me enough that when I gave him an answer, he would understand my heart towards him. He would would see me as someone who's actually laid down my life to love him. You know, that's how it should be in leadership. You should see the people that lead you as people who have laid down their life to love you so that when they say something to you, you understand where it's coming from and you want rather than them being a manipulation that's trying to get you to do something they want. You're not there to build a man's kingdom. We're here to build God's. And I'm just telling you, like, listen, like, if, if you understand the father, then you want to be like that to other people. So when you see Jesus kneeling before the one who's going to betray him and washing his feet, you understand he wasn't doing it to change Judas. He was doing it because he loved him. It wasn't manipulation. I was like, all right, Judas, I'm going to wash your feet. and Then you have to not do what's in your heart. No, he said, Judas, you're going to do what's in your heart, and I'm going to love you anyway, so I'm going to wash your feet. And you'll never forget that while you were planning to sell me for 30 pieces of silver, I was on my knees in front of you washing your feet. Because that kind of love changes people. You know, like, side note, this whole message is a side note, so. <laughs> part B to addendum A. (laughs) Um, The thing that you choose in little compromise will be the thing that you choose in big compromise, and it won't feel like big compromise because you've paved the way to the big one with so many little ones. It says, for Judas was a thief and had been stealing from the money bag. You and I sit here and wonder, how on earth could you sell Christ for 30 pieces of silver very easily? You'd already sold him every time you reached into the money bag and took what belonged to him and lived at his expense. To actually outright sell him was just another step on that ladder. That was the step from 19 to 20, but steps 1 through 19, were continually doing something that one day would lead you to the place of what we call the big one, and it wasn't a big one for Judas, it was just continuation of what he had already started. Be careful about those. I'm telling you, be careful about those little compromises. I just, I know God wants to deal with this stuff in the body of Christ because I believe he's wanting to pour himself out in a way that is going to change so many people, but he doesn't want to pour it out, only to see it burn bright and then crash to the ground one more time again. And I, I honestly believe, like if he tells us, don't give something of value to something, a pearl before a swine, don't give something of value to someone that can't value it. If we don't value purity in the little there's no chance we'll value purity in the lot so judas it's a natural progression for him just like so many things in life but so anyways i i I prayed and i felt like god said yes so i acted like That was something that like made sense to me was, okay, so if I ask God and he said this, if I had a word from the Lord that said this, then I have to do on my end the things that are required in order to do what it is that I asked him about. I couldn't sit back and be like, okay, then Lord rapture me to South Carolina. I mean, not that he couldn't do that, but you ever notice that Peter was on his way somewhere when God actually teleport, translated him and teleported him to wherever it is that he went? Peter wasn't sitting somewhere doing nothing, and God said, okay, and sucked him up to there. He was actually already going where he was supposed to go. And God said, hey, I see your effort. I'm going to help you, and I'm going to do what you can't do. I'm going to honor what you have done. And so I had a word from the Lord, and I felt like, so I gave a two-week notice to my job. And I told only my mom that I was moving. I didn't tell anybody else because I didn't want to be talked out of it. Be careful when you have a word from the Lord that you don't share it with people that are going to try to talk you out of it. I knew who I could trust with that pearl. I knew who I couldn't. You know what? Jesus didn't entrust himself to every single person with every single thing it says. For he didn't entrust himself to them because he knew what was in the heart of men. If it was okay for Jesus to hold some things back to himself and only entrust it to a few, it's okay for you to do the same. So, I called my probation officer excited because when God speaks, things happen. I was convinced of that because that's so far the track record I have. And so the natural next step was to let my probation officer know about God and I's plan. And so I called him and I said, I'm going to move to South Carolina. He says, are you asking me to tell me?" I said, well, I don't know. I, I, I want to. And he says, we can talk about it at our next meeting. And so I said, okay. So the next meeting comes and I took everything, which once again consisted of, I think, two trash bags full of clothes, a surfboard and skateboard and loaded in the back of my little white truck and drove to the probation office on my way to South Carolina it was just a mere stop of formality as you know okay I'll talk to you and then I'll do what God's called me to do because if he's called me obviously I'm going and I remember walking in there and we talked about our normal stuff and I peed in the cup and did all that kind of stuff and and then he says so you want to move to South Carolina and I said yes sir and I said I just feel like it'd be a good start for me get away from everything and if I stay here I'll probably end up either dead or back in jail He said, yeah, well, there's a problem with that. The problem is is that South Carolina's uh, Department of Justice doesn't have reciprocity with Florida's Department of Justice. And I said, what does that mean? And and I think he thought I meant, what does the word reciprocity mean? I actually knew what the word reciprocity meant. What I was saying is, so what are you telling me? But I I guess he didn't know that I knew that, so he explained to me. He said, Mr. Geese, it actually means that South Carolina doesn't want Florida's trash. I said, so, I was going to say, so what does that mean again? But I realized that's just going to get me an even dumber answer. (laughs) And I I knew the first time, I wasn't going to ask a third time. So he says, so what are you telling me? And he said, I'm saying you can't go. And for the first time in my life, and it would happen many times since, what a man said contradicted what God said, and I was caught in the middle having to choose this day whom I believe. And I was just dumb enough to believe that if God said I was going then, and I did everything I felt like he told me to do, then the problem wasn't with me, the problem wasn't with him, the problem was the man in front of me. And so I just stared at him. <laughs> I didn't know what else to do. Listen, doing nothing sometimes is better than doing the wrong thing just because you feel like you should be doing something. Hey, think about it. Peter is up with Jesus on the mountain when he gets transfigured and he sees Moses and he sees Elijah and he sees Jesus and he says, he's terrified. He says, it is good for us to make an altar for all three of you. It says, because he was terrified, he didn't know what to do. Just when you're afraid and don't know what to do, don't feel like you have to do something because it might be the wrong thing. God answers him real quick and says, this is my son, hear him. In other words, quit talking about building altars to these two. These two were supposed to lead you to where you're at. Sometimes we get nervous and we have to do something because we don't know what to do. It's okay to say, I don't know what to do. It's okay to do nothing sometimes rather than do the wrong thing. And so I just did nothing. I just stared at him. And in my head, I'm thinking, this is weird. I'm sure in his head he was thinking similar thoughts. And I don't know what happened, or do I? But he looked at me after a while, and it was probably 20, 30 seconds, but it felt like it was an hour. It was creepy, probably, you know. There's this kid just staring at you. I didn't look like this, remember? And all of a sudden, he says, I don't know why. I do. I don't know why, but I'm going to let you go. He said, but you better be sure this is really what you want. And you better keep your nose clean. He said, because if you get arrested for so much as jaywalking, when they find that you're in our system and they get a hold of me, I'll deny ever telling you that you could go. And along with the original sentence, you're going to serve every bit of that. Plus, you're going to have additional charges tacked on for fleeing the state and violation of your or terms of your probation. Because I'm not losing my pension over you. Are you sure you want to go? Yes, sir. And then it was like he realized I was serious, and maybe he saw something in the way that I answered him, and then he kind of softened a little bit. He said, all right, good luck, but you will be back in my office once a month to pee in a cup and to have our talk. Yes, sir. So I jumped in my truck, got on 95 North, and I got in the state of South Carolina, and I looked behind me, and there's blue lights. <laughs> and look, like I've said this before, I'm 20-something years removed from that life. I still get nervous now my palms sweat, my, my, my breathing gets heavy and sh- like sh- shallow. I was talking to Patty one time on the phone and all of a sudden she goes, is there a cop behind you? And there was. I said, yeah, how do you know? She's like, you sound funny and you turn the radio down. Because that's what you do when a cop gets behind you. First thing you do, turn the radio down. And I, I I, but, but now, and, and I'm sure that I'm clean today. Like, there's nothing hidden in my car. I'm, I don't, you know, we, we weren't rolling blunts on the, on the, on the, on the dashboard of my van. For, for years, where there could be stuff that fell down in the AC vents that a, you know, a dog could find. I wasn't stashing cocaine and stuff in my car, but I still get freaked out. But back then, I'm talking about I was sweating, and I didn't know what was going to happen, and I didn't know if like a traffic ticket was going to be something that was going to cause the whole thing to get set into motion. I was panicking. So I pulled over, and I talked myself through it, and I'm like, you have nothing to worry about. You've done nothing wrong. Now, I'm giving myself the pep talk. And then I'm like, look calm and natural. Okay, when you try to look calm and natural, you don't look calm and natural. Because <laughs> you're aware of trying to be something, and so you're trying to be it. And then you're afraid that you're not, so you change <laughs> Don't cross your arms, that looks defensive. Don't put your hands in your pockets, what if you wonder what's in there? Don't sit on your hands, why would you sit on your hands, you idiot? And I'm having this running through my head as the cop, is, the state trooper is putting his hat on and walking up to the car. And so he, he says, uh, how are you doing? I'm fine. <clears throat> <laughs> I'm, I'm fine. How are you? <laughs> and in my head, I'm thinking like, just look natural, but not too natural. Smile, don't laugh, because then you might think you're high. <laughs> you're not high. Oh, yeah. Well, why would you act high if you're not high? And you know, all of a sudden, this is going on in the back. And, and he says, uh, do you know why I pulled you over? No. <clears throat> no? He's. I, I wish I had, I, when I get to heaven, I'm going to ask God, can I watch the tape? <laughs> he said, I, I pulled you over. Because I noticed a while ago, coming up that hill, you, you got in the right lane, and then you went around a vehicle, a truck, and you, you got back in the left lane. He said, I think in Florida, you're allowed to pass on the right, but South Carolina, you have to maintain travel in the right lane for a certain distance before you get back in the left lane, or it's considered passing on the right. And I saw you had a Florida tag. I figured you didn't know that, and I just figured I'd pull you over and tell you. Okay? He says, so where are you headed? Uh, Green- Greenville uh, or Greer- Gre- Greerville? <laughs> Greer. But it's close to Greenville. <laughs> he said, yeah, oh, man, Greenville's a beautiful place. It's really changing a lot. Like, yeah. Which What brings you up there? I said, uh, I didn't want to be like, I just came from my probation officer. I'm running away from a life of drunken crimes. <laughs> and I gave my life to Jesus, and I feel like he said to come here. <laughs> I said, I'll oh, just, you know, change of pace. And he said, well, that's good. I hope it works out for you. And 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 at some point during the conversation, I'm thinking, this is going way better than and encounter with the police should go and he keeps just talking to me and being friendly and I'm thinking is he high because <laughs> he's just so happy and then I thought wait am I high <laughs> no and then it dawned on me I'm like oh he's just kind of making comfortable conversation waiting for the canine unit to pull because that's what they used to do you know Wait for backup with a canine. and then I started getting really terrified, thinking, "What if there's something in the car that I didn't remember was there that had fell in a crack, and the drug dog finds it?" And I, this is all going through my head while I'm trying to have a normal conversation with a police officer, and I'm got my palms are probably dripping sweat at this point. I don't even know where to stick them. You know, it's like you don't want to just put them on your steering wheel because then you look like a convict that's done through the routine before. But you, know, you don't want to stick them in your pockets and it looks like you're covering something up. Don't be defensive. You know, this is stupid. And so, but he just ends the conversation by saying, I hope you have a good day and just, you know, just be safe. And he walks back to his car, sits down. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and I'm driving off and halfway expecting something else to happen and nothing happens. And so I just kept on going, and I I got to the house where my little brother was staying where I was going to stay, and he said, let's get something to eat. We jumped in his car. We drove to Applebee's on Wade Hampton, and as I was walking in the door, this girl that he knew from hanging out with her cousin said hi to him, and he introduced me to her, and he said, Roy, this is Patty. Patty, this is Roy. Hey. Hey, Patty. And a few days later, I told him, my friends, I'm going to marry that girl. I, I felt like the Lord had told me I was going to. Listen, Like if you feel like the Lord's told you who you're going to marry, I don't care how beautiful that swine is, don't throw your pearl there. <laughs> Keep that to yourself. Let him tell her. <laughs> Trust me. Lord said, we're going to get married. You want to talk about like how to ruin a word? <laughs> Steward that one, young man. Let that time be the, 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 the proof of that. I didn't say anything to her. I, I did actually later write her a note and sign it halfway jokingly. Well, totally serious, but I knew she wouldn't take it totally serious. Your future husband, Roy. And, um, and I, I remember during that time, though, when I first came up here, I would go home from work and I would open my Bible up and I would read it until I fell asleep. I'd wake up in the morning and I'd read the Word until... My ride for work picked me up, and then I would go to work all day long, working by myself, hanging vinyl siding on a house. And I would think about what I read, and I would talk, and he would answer, and I would ask questions, and he would reply. And I was learning what he was like, and I was discovering a loving father that cared about me, that loved me, that created me with purpose. And I read about and started to learn about a spirit that would come and live inside of me and be upon me, that would lead me and guide me into all truth. And I started to learn about Jesus being the firstborn among many brethren, and I realized I was one of the many and that I was a co-heir, and I was a joint heir, and I started to realize I have a reason for being here, and I would read the word to know him. And I was reading it just to know him. And, and, and I'm, I'm telling you guys this this morning. I had a message, and it goes with this, and we're, I'm going to preach it next week. But, but sometimes when I preach these things about knowing him for yourself, it, it, it's not enough. Like, like the stories that I heard about who he was weren't enough for me. I had to have my own story with him like i had to know him for myself i had to experience him for myself i had to grab a hold of his hem i had to be the one like i had to actually act and live as though what he said was true and then expect him to be who he said he would be it wasn't enough for me to hear stories about who he was i had to know who are you today who are you now I had to know him for myself, and, and, and I think sometimes if we're not careful, we hear stories about what God has done or what God's done in people's lives, and if we aren't careful, we'll settle for being able to retell someone else's story rather than letting that story push us into a story of our own so that we have a story to tell. And you realize, like, testimony is amazing and it's powerful, but it doesn't do anything on its own unless we actually take that and run with it and let that push us into pursuit of him for ourselves. When, when, I'll, I'm closing here. We we're out of time. And next week's going to be incredible because this word he gave me is going to be amazing. Um, but you remember the woman with the issue of blood? Remember, she reaches out, grabs a hold of the hem of Jesus' garment because she said to herself, if I could just touch the hem of his garment, I'll be healed. And Jesus makes a big scene about this. And I realize why Jesus made such a spectacle about it. I think he was drawing attention to what the woman did so that the testimony of it would travel far. He turns to his disciples, he says, who touched me? They look at him, you know the story, they say, I mean, who touched you? You're in a crowded place, how can you ask us who touched you? In other words, everybody touched you. He says, no, 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 I'm not talking about someone just casually brushing up against me. I'm not talking about somebody just being in the same vicinity. You can be in the same vicinity as Jesus and not be changed. You can casually brush up against him like everybody else in the crowd and nothing flow out of him that changes your life. But you can't grab a hold of him with intention and not be touched and not be changed. He says, No, no, no. Somebody touched me and grabbed a hold of me because I felt something go out of me. And the woman says, It was me. I did. A woman who everybody knew had been sick for a long time and had done everything she could to be different grabbed a hold of the one with intention and received what she had settled in her heart she would if she could just get a hold of him you know what the amazing thing is is a few chapters later jesus goes to another town it says and when he arrived all the sick were coming to him and grabbing the hem of his garment and as many as grabbed a hold of it were healed where do you think, listen, before this woman did that, before Jesus made a big scene about it, and before he pointed that out, you realize it's not recorded anywhere that people were touching the hem of his garment and being healed. Where do you think they got the crazy idea that if they grabbed the hem of his garment, they'd be healed? It's because they heard a story of what happened when one person cared enough to say, I'll go where he is, I'll find him, and I won't let go until I get from him what he has to give. But here's the truth. They had to go grab the hem of his garment themselves. It doesn't say as many as heard the story and said, wow, that's amazing, we're healed. It said they had to actually go to where he was and they had to grab a hold of it for themselves, believing that they would be healed in order to receive something from him. I, I know when I preach sometimes there's an intensity in, in what I say. And my wife tells me sometimes, she's like, you don't look mad when you speak. And I, I promise I've never spoke that I know of in my heart. I've never spoke angrily. From, from up here, but I do have an intensity in me because I've seen what happens when people actually believe him and go after him and want to be changed by him. And I, 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 I want you to do that, but I can't do it for you. We want you to do that, but we can't do that for you. I, I can't grab his garment for you. I can tell you the story. I can tell you where he is. I can help you get there, but you have to reach out and grab a hold of that thing to be changed to receive what he has. And and I'm saying, I wanted to tell you where I came from because, well, for one, I had a guy say, hey, I listened to a message you preached at a different church. I never knew any of that stuff about you, and I realized I probably preach it when I travel places more than I preach it here, but also because I wanted you to understand where it's coming from. It's not coming from someone who has a hypothesis about what God could be like. It's coming from someone who went to the lowest place in life and actually turned their heart towards God in a very simple way, and God reached down and grabbed a hold of me, and my life has never been the same. It never will be the same. I'm more in love today than I was the day that he rescued me in that bathroom. And in 20 years, I'm going to be more in love then than I am today because I'm going to know him more. And the more I know him, the more I love him. The more I love him, the more I want to know him and I want to be with him. And there's this thing of hunger that I feel like God is stirring in the body of Christ where it's like we're not okay to just hear stories from people. Those are amazing, but those stories have to bring us to a place of saying, I have to have you for myself. I have to know you for myself. I can't know you through other people. I can know about you through others, but I have to know you for myself. And, and we didn't just get married so that I could go back to living life the way that, that, that I was before we got married, and one day we'll have a honeymoon in the sweet by and by. No, we, we got into covenant because you wanted me to know all of you, and you want to know all of me. And you want to make yourself available 100% to me. And you said the things I, that you did, I'll do, and greater things if I just believe. And we could argue about the greater things till the cows come home. Let's start with the things that, he, that we know he did. And let's say like, we're, we're not okay walking through this life without seeing that. Because there's gonna be times in life where you have to be anchored in that word. It's, it, I started to say this earlier. It was the first time of many times that what someone said to me discounted or came against what God has spoke to me. I remember the most recent time that, that marked my life was when we were in the hospital with Aaliyah and the doctor took me aside. He said, do you realize the severity of her injuries? And I said, yeah, I think so. He said, I don't think you do, because we're still at the place of wondering, is this survivable at any point, never mind therapy? Because I was talking about how long therapy would last and how long that was going to take and what it was going to look like and what we're going to have to do to, for her to get back to who she was. And he said, you need to understand it right now, we're not even sure this is survivable. And if she survives, she will not be who she was ever. She'll probably be violent, angry, disturbed, and prone to outlashes of anger and rage. He said, she's going to be very difficult to live with. You guys need to prepare yourselves for if she, if she makes it out of here, who you're going to have to deal with. And it's going to be hard, and you might not be able to do it. I knew what God had said. And then I heard what this man said. And I'm thankful that I learned at a young age in life That when what I hear come from the mouth of a man doesn't match up with what I hear come from the mouth of the Father, I'm more thankful for the word that I have from the Father rather than questioning the word from the Father at the expense of him. And when you're settled, when you're anchored, I wrote this in worship, and I I, I really will close with this. I promise. When circumstances come against us, we either question or become more thankful for his word depending on whether we've anchored our life to it or simply given it lip service. When your circumstances come against the word of God, you'll either become more thankful for his word or you'll question his word. Because, and, and the difference is whether or not I've actually anchored and sold out my life to it or whether I've just given it lip service and it's become just another thing that I've adopted into my life. Paul says, when Christ is, is revealed, who is our life? He's not an addition to our lives. He's not a nice story. He's not a part. He is our life and our lives are anchored to him. And I wanted to share this stuff because I want for for you guys to understand, like, I have this desire for every single one of us. We do. The leadership, the people, the members, we're all his church. Like, there's no, like, distinction here. We say this all the time, like it's not about like the anointed man or the anointed woman of God. Like we're all the family of God pursuing the Lord and we all play our parts. And some parts naturally people see more and some parts people are naturally drawn to more. But the truth of the matter is, is every single one of us makes up the body of Christ. We all carry the image of him and every one of us is gifted to do things for the kingdom of God. And we burn in this church, our leadership, the hearts of Patty and I, to see people know him in a way that changes their life so that you have now something that's worth giving to other people because what you have, you give. And if what you have isn't worth giving to people, then abandon it and scrap it and go after him until you have something that's worth giving. Because I promise the problem is not with him. It's with our understanding of him. He was never the problem. My understanding of him was the problem. I didn't know who he was i didn't know what he was like now that i do he's the pearl of great price and i'll give up anything for him anything so father i just ask that you would put within your bride not not just here, your father everywhere your bride is gathered in all the different places this burning desire for more of you god a burning desire to know you as you can be known to not be content to live on the stories of others or the stories of our past, God, but to live in the present and say, God, who you were, encourage me about who you are and who you will be. So what I see when I look back is your faithfulness. So what I expect today is your faithfulness. And what I expect as I look forward is your faithfulness. God, I see your love behind me. I recognize your love today, and I expect your love in the future because it's who you are and you don't change. Father, would you just would you put inside of us just that, that, that thing that the woman with the issue of blood had? Where it wouldn't take us having an incurable disease to come after you that way. That we would catch the disease of loving Jesus that's incurable. That we would spend the rest of our lives God pursuing Him. In Jesus' name, amen.